0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. What was life like for a young African-American woman enslaved by America's first family? Ona, or Oni Judge, moved from Mount Vernon to Philadelphia with George and Martha Washington in a time of change. Philadelphia was on its way to abolishing slavery, so Washington's slaves were oddballs in a city of freed slaves. What can Ona's story teach us about racial injustice and gender inequality? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Historian Erica Armstrong Dunbar stumbled upon the story of Ona Judge by chance. She discovered a runaway slave advertisement while doing research.
1: I remember sort of sitting back and saying, who is this Oni Judge and why don't I know her?
0: Dunbar teaches history at Rutgers University. She studies the lives of women of African descent who lived in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. As a seamstress and spinner, Ona Judge became Martha Washington's most trusted slave. Still, Ona wasn't free, so, at age 22, she escaped. Dunbar chronicles the life of Ona Judge in her book Never Caught, the Washington's relentless pursuit of their runaway slave, Ona Judge. Ona's story, she says, touches on race, gender, labor, and presidential politics at the end of the 18th century. While Ona's story surfaces tough issues America still grapples with, it's also a story about triumph, survival, and resistance. Journalist Michelle Norris interviews Dunbar. Here's Norris.
2: So could you just tell us, introduce us to Oni Judge, and tell us a little bit about her.
1: Sure. So, well, first let me just say thank you for inviting me to have this talk today and to share the the sort of experience of writing the book um, and what I really wanted to accomplish writing it the the name Oni Judge is the name that, if anyone knew anything about the enslaved who lived at Mount Vernon, you probably knew Hercules, you probably knew Oni Judge, in part because she appears in some of the other sort of very known, well-known biographies of, of the Washingtons. Um, however, it's a, a sort of couple pages here or a paragraph there. Um, her name was, uh, I call her Ona Judge, which is the name that she went by at the end of her life. And so as a marker of adult dignity, I we call her Ona. In all of the records at Mount Vernon, she's referred to as Oni, O-N-E-Y. O-N-E-Y. Um, and I argue that that was the, the diminutive of her name, the, a nickname like little Billy or Timmy, um, and we get Oni. But it's very clear that once she, um, manages to detach herself from the Washingtons that she goes by the name ona so I use um, that name very sort of purposefully um, to make certain that we're sort of renaming her and and understanding her for the person that she saw herself to be I you know I came across some information about ona about 20 years ago so I was working on my first book which was about how, black women were becoming free in the North. And I was in the microfilm room where nosy historians spend most of their days (laughs) trying to not be blurry eyed at the end of of the day. And I came across, I was sort of, what's going on in 18th century America? And one of the best ways to figure that out is by looking at the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And so um, looking at the newspapers is what led me to Ona. And I'm looking through 1796 And up jumps a runaway slave advertisement. And, you know, to have a runaway slave advertisement in a place like Philadelphia in the 1790s, late 1790s, was somewhat rare. It still happened. People who lived in surrounding states that still were very invested in slavery would advertise for those who had run off. But Philadelphia, we should say, at that point was on its way toward... Full abolition. Correct. Uh, Philadelphia was, uh, Pennsylvania, the state was actually one of the first to begin a kind of gradual emancipation process. So by the time that the Washingtons arrive in Philadelphia, there are very few enslaved people, maybe 100 or so. And there are thousands, six, 7,000 free blacks. So Ona's entering into an environment where she's actually the oddball as, as an enslaved person. And here I'm looking at these, these newspapers from the late 1790s, and here's an, an advertisement that says, absconded from the household of the president of the United States. And that's the moment where I was like, okay, wait, freeze. What, what is this about? Who ran away and, you know, I'm doing the, the math, 1796, it's still George Washington, they're in Philadelphia. And um, the advertisement went on to introduce Oni, and who they called Oni, who I call Ona, and that was my first encounter with her in the archives, and I remember sort of sitting back and saying, who is this Oni judge, and why don't I know her? And much like, as you were saying before, the sort of people who we don't know much about, who have these kind of important lives, yet They have not been included in this sort of traditional narrative of history. Oni sort of jumped out at me and I thought, you know, what happened to her? Was she ran away from the most powerful man in the United States at this moment? Was she able to stay free? Was she able, or rather detached, not free? And I actually don't use the word free and freedom a lot in the book because the reality was that Ona was a fugitive. Uh, And that she would spend nearly half a century as a fugitive, Uh, but it was that initial spotting of this runaway slave advertisement that really began a nine-year journey of researching and writing this book. I
2: want to come back to the slave adverts Mm -hmm. later, but I love the language, absconded from the household of the President of the United (laughs) States. there's a section of the book that i want you to read if you don't mind mm-hmm. that helps us understand who she was and how her life was upended sure uh, george washington had a very comfortable life in mount vernon uh, comfortable in terms of his creature comforts but actually tough it was hard to make a go of it sure. he actually was um in terms of financial stability we know that he really struggled, struggled.
1: Mm-hmm. but
2: it was if you've been to mount vernon you see how beautiful it was she understood life she had friends there she had siblings there yeah. her mother betty yeah. Um, Betty Davis was Mm -hmm, there, mm -hmm. Uh, and then as George Washington became president, he moved to to the East Coast, the Mm -hmm. Eastern Seaboard, and took a small number of slaves with him. And this was quite an adventure, and for some it represented opportunity because they knew that they would be moving among a sea of free black people. Mm -hmm, mm But for her, it meant snatching her from everything
1: that she knew. So if yeah. you could kind of introduce us to her. Yeah, that. I, I, I'll read. I, I think it's important to to contextualize when Ona was born and, and what environment she was living in. She was born sometime in 1773, 74. We don't know her exact birth date because the birth dates of enslaved people were not typically recorded. I was having a conversation the other day with Annette Gordon-Reed, who wrote The Hemings of Monticello, and she's um, sort of confronted the issue of slaveholding presidents. Um, and what we realized was that Ona Judge and Sally Hemings were contemporaries, that they were born perhaps in the same year, um, and but have ex- very, very different experiences. Ona's born 1773, 74 at Mount Vernon, her mother is a woman named Betty, who was what they call a dower slave. She uh, came with Martha Washington from her first marriage. So Martha was married one time before George, deceit, her husband died, and it really kind of left her as one of the wealthiest widows um, in the Chesapeake. And so when George married uh, Martha my, my grandmother always says that George married up, right? That he <laughs> married into some money. Um, and in part, when we think about sort of property, um, land, as well as slaves. And so Martha brings enslaved people with her to Mount Vernon. And one of those enslaved people was Betty. That would be Ona's mom. Ona's father was a white indentured servant by the name of Andrew Judge. He was a tailor for the president. He uh, made some of the sort of more um, important uniforms that he wore in battle. Um, and so he was, he, he was a sort of well-known and um, uh, appreciated tailor. Betty was a seamstress and a spinner. So their paths crossed. I don't know if their, their encounter was consensual. I don't know if it was not. Um, but what I do know is that at some time in 1773, 74, Ona's born. And in all of the records at Mount Vernon, she's, she has a surname. She is noted as Oni Judge, as well as in the, the runaway slave ad. And that was really sort of important to recognize because most of the enslaved did not have surnames, um, and were only sort of referred to by their first name. That was different for her. Uh, And so she grew up at Mount Vernon, and by the age of 10, she's invited, or rather told, that she is going to begin her work. And that was very typical for enslaved children, that um, childhood was kind of fast and fleeting for enslaved people. So at the age of 10, she's brought up to the mansion house, and she's told, you're going to work in the house. You are going to become a seamstress and a spinner, much like her mother. And um, she does this and in some way she, and I'm still looking for a good term for this, but she basically becomes Martha Washington's top slave, her preferred slave. So when George Washington is unanimously elected uh, president and he has to move to New York, they make the decision to bring seven enslaved people with them to New York and own is one of them. I'll read, you know, it's really actually very important that we're having this conversation today because today is actually George Washington's birthday, right, his 286th uh, birthday. Uh, So I think it's even more kind of poignant that we're having this conversation today. Um, But I'd like to read for a moment from the book um, the moment that Ona is forced to leave Mount Vernon and what it means to her and to the family that she left behind The young Ona Judge was far from an experienced traveler. The teenager knew only Mount Vernon and its surroundings and had never traveled far from her family and loved ones. For Judge, the move must have been similar to the dreaded auction block. Although she was not to be sold to a different owner, she was forced to leave her family for an unfamiliar destination hundreds of miles away. Judge would have no choice but to stifle the terror she felt and go on about the work of preparing to move, folding linens, packing Martha Washington's dresses and personal accessories and helping with the grandchildren or the tasks at hand. And it wasn't her place to complain or question. Judge had to remain strong and steady, if not for herself, then for her mistress, who appeared to be falling apart at the seams. Like Judge, Martha Washington had no choice about the move to New York. Her life was at the direction of her husband, who was now the most powerful man in the country. Mrs. Washington and Ona Judge may have shared similar concerns, but of course only Martha Washington was allowed to express discontent and sorrow. Martha Washington was unhappy and everyone knew it, including her frightened slave. The president's nephew, Robert Lewis, would also soon be made aware of it. When he arrived at the estate on May 14th, things were in disarray. Lewis, who served as Washington's secretary between 1789 and 91, was chosen to escort his aunt and her grandchildren to New York, but was surprised and a bit concerned when he arrived to find a frenzied and hectic scene. Lewis wrote, quote, quote everything appeared to be in confusion, end quote, the manifestation of Mrs. Washington's conflicting feelings. Robert Lewis described the departure, which finally took place on May 16, 1789, as an emotional moment for the slaves and the first lady. He wrote, after an early dinner and making all necessary arrangements in which we were greatly retarded, it brought us to three o'clock in the afternoon when we left Mount V, the servants of the house and a number of the field Negroes made their appearance to take leave of their mistress. Numbers of these poor wretches seemed greatly agitated, much affected, my aunt equally so. Betty, Ona Judge's mother, must have been one of those agitated slaves. Not only was she losing her 16-year-old daughter, but she was also losing her son, Austin, who would serve as one of the Washington's waiters. Austin's wife Charlotte and their children would have joined in the morning. Betty watched her children leave Mount Vernon, a reminder of what little control slave mothers had over the lives of their children. If she found any comfort that day, it would have been that brother and sister were traveling together. Austin was older and male and could look out for his younger sister, but still Betty knew that her relationship with her children would never be the same.
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Today's moderator, Michelle Norris, is featured in another Ideas To Go episode. She talks about race with former Gates Foundation CEO, Jeff Rakes and Ford Foundation President, Darren Walker. It's imperative, she says, to discuss the word colorblind.
2: And it's time that we start talking about this particular word, because it can, in some ways, prevent things from happening. Some people feel it can open new doors, but it's something that we need to examine with our eyes open.
0: Find the episode, Why We Need to Talk About Race, by searching Aspen Ideas To Go in your favorite podcast player. There's also a link in our show notes. Back to today's show, here's Michelle Norris.
2: So, when Ona is leaving and you say she was the most favored slave, I wondered if Martha Washington had a a very complicated relationship with her in that she almost saw her as a replacement for the children that she mm. had lost. Mm. She had lost all her children, was raising her two grandchildren. They had moved into the house, and Ona was the principal caretaker for them. But I just was wondering if, if that added a, a, a different kind of
1: dimension to their relationship, because she really did trust her right. quite a bit. She did. You know, when you chose someone to be your top slave, it meant, and I'm still working on a term for that, we need a, a better term, but it means that you're entrusting that per- person with the most intimate of responsibilities. So it meant that Ona was helping her bathe. Ona was helping, was brushing her hair, was making some of her clothing and then later on at least taking care of it. Um, she went on all of Martha Washington's social calls with her and really had to practice this art of being ever present yet invisible at the same time. And I'm not certain that Martha Washington sort of had a sentimental kind of uh, connection with Ona. I think Martha Washington was a woman who had lived through great loss and had watched her world kind of turn upside down time and time again. Her first husband, he dies. Um, Relatively um, seven or eight years after they were married all of her children die before really adulthood. One lives and, and dies we're, um, fighting in the revolution. And so she really has only these grandchildren left. And her husband's often on the edge of death himself. Exactly. So by the time that she marries Washington, who has significant health issues um, throughout, before his presidency and then throughout it, um, I think Martha was someone who was very kind of emblematic of the 18th century in that nothing was really predictable, mm-hmm. that things were uncertain. And at least in Ona, there was stability. There was a woman, a young woman, who um, spent most of her time with Martha. She knew her likes, her dislikes, uh, She and she learned that quickly. Um, and so I think there was more of a reliance upon her, upon Ona, to be the constant. To be the, the the through line that would
2: help her go through this transition.
1: Right, I mean her mother, Ona's mother Betty, was a favored slave as well, which is part of the reason that Martha brought her to Mount Vernon. And in many ways that baton was passed to Ona.
2: So you, your words are important in this also, mm-hmm. and you you. Do use the word slave, but you often use the word bondsman and bondswoman and enslaved, right? And enslaved. And is that because just having to repeat the word slave over and over again was just so difficult?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I have a note in the sort of beginning of the book that I, as you know, as a scholar, as a historian, we, we typically refer to people as enslaved people, right? It's a reminder of the action that was placed upon them, as opposed to it being an identity, right? And so to use the word enslaved over and over again, uh, when you're also sort of thinking about narrative flow and the arc, I, I have a kind of disclaimer where I say, look, I, I prefer to use the term enslaved. But as I was writing, there were moments where the word slave was substituted. Um, but for the, for the most part, and, and for the students who were, so what, seniors and in high school, you know, as you move on to college and you take your history courses, um, you'll know to refer when you're taking your 18th and 19th century history courses, you'll know that the right, the the, the actually appropriate way to refer to people who were in bondage um, is to, to call them enslaved.
2: Well, speaking of history, you've chalked the book full of all kinds of history. And I was wondering is, if you were looking for moments to actually bring people along and introduce, you know, as much history as you could. There are little side, like almost, I don't want to say they're tangential, mm-hmm. but they're, we take a, a sort of a side street, yeah. I'll call it that, to learn about the time that Benjamin Banneker um, predicts an eclipse, right. and everyone thinks he's crazy, and then right. the eclipse happens, and they think, oh, he actually <laughs> is smarter than we thought he was. Um, and you do that over and over and over again. Was that... Was that in the way that if you're a parent, when you put a lot of vegetables into the spaghetti, um, you know, to... <laughs>
1: they will be consumed yes, some way yes, without That's even them knowing it? Exactly um, what I was thinking. I think after you know writing Ona writing Ona's story and spending nine years on the project, it became very clear that I could, of course, introduce her and her biography, her life's story. But she also became this sort of fabulous portal mm. to understand the founding of the nation through the eyes of an enslaved person, as opposed to kind of a, a top down founding fathers narrative that we've all heard about and you all read about, you know, what, cherry trees and wooden teeth and cannot tell a lie and, in elementary school. Um, And this was an opportunity to really show the history of the early republic, the history of um, the founding of the nation. And what's so wonderful about Ona is that because she travels, right, she travels from Virginia to New York, eventually to Philadelphia, and then later on to New England, she's basically covered all of the new nation. You know, one of the very few people who were enslaved, who did that, and who left some kind of record about her enslavement. So it gave me, you know, I'm a I'm a history professor. That's my job to like teach history. And so Ona's life gave me that opportunity to think about things like how slavery was ending in the North, but becoming much more entrenched in the South. What did the laws look like regarding returning fugitive slaves, what did it mean to be a slave who worked in the household as opposed to in the fields and trying to kind of break through some myths about what it meant to be a household slave as opposed to someone working on uh, growing wheat or tobacco Mm -hmm. on uh, Mount Vernon's many, many farms. And so her story, as I said, gave me that opportunity to talk about race, to talk about gender, to talk about labor, to talk about also, you know, what's happening with kind of presidential politics in the end of the 18th century, um, her life allows me to do all of that. And to talk about hard truths. Yeah.
2: One of the things you return to again and again and again for female, for women who were enslaved, the constant threat of assault, yeah, of, of sexual assault. Yeah. Um, she, as the caretaker of the young children, slept in the house and actually slept in the next room. And you, you talk again and again, you know, because you, you apparently want people to understand what that, what that meant. for work. Yeah,
1: you know, I think there's this false um, understanding of what a field slave and a house slave supposedly were, right? And there's this sort of idea that if, or stereotype, that if you were working in the house, your job was easier that you weren't in the fields from sunup to sundown. And what I tried to, to do with this text is to show us that it's more complicated than that and that work in working in the household of a slave owner was extremely difficult because you were always on duty. Your work was unyielding. You were always under the kind of microscope of your owner, and so an owner's bad mood, whether it was because of, I don't know, the accidental breaking of a dish or inconveniently timed bad weather, if you are the enslaved person living in the house with access, constant access to your owner, that became difficult, problematic, sometimes violent. Um, Forget about the difficulty of cooking and cleaning in the 18th century without electricity, without, um, you know, it meant being up very, very early to prepare breakfast. You know, you're baking bread yourself. Um, you are plucking chickens. You are, how do you do the laundry in uh, New Hampshire in February in the 18th century? You know, where do you go? How do you fetch that water? we know that historians know that they've uncovered, unearthed, Um, the skeletal remains of enslaved people, women in particular, in New Hampshire, in Pennsylvania, and their, their fracture lines in their skulls from carrying large loads of water and laundry many, 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 many years. Um, sort of reverting back to African traditions, but also that's how you brought water on their head, on your hand, on your head, holding it with your hands. That's how you would fetch water in order to cook, in order to clean. If you were make, doing laundry, you made the soap, right? Out of lye and animal fat. And so we don't think, especially now in this sort of modern age, what it meant to cook a meal. I mean, I complain, all so I hate to cook, right? I complain about it all the time. Um, and then I sort of steady myself because I say, okay, Erica, it's not the 18th century. You have electricity. You have a microwave, <laughs> things that make life, um, technology that has allowed life to be easier um, in the domestic sphere. But for these people, for Ona, this was backbreaking labor that was intensive and constant aside from the fact that you were physically vulnerable because of your space, your proximity to not just your owner, but your owner's sons your owner's grandsons and nephews and relatives and friends, that all enslaved women knew that they were constantly um, vulnerable to sexual attack. And we have, that's another sort of hard truth, we have to understand that slavery was a system that was perpetuated by forced breeding, by rape. And so I think about the, the narrative of Harriet Jacobs, another woman who ran away much later, who wrote that, you know, at a young age, young enslaved girls were told kind of what could happen, the ways to try and avoid it. But it was, it's sort of um, the story, you know, I'll make the comparison. Historians don't like to make this kind of 21st century comparisons, but I have a 13-year-old son, and one of the the conversations that I had to have with him was what to do if you're pulled over by law enforcement when you start driving as a black boy, what do you do? How do you negotiate that situation? What is your strategy to try? And of course, it's his job to come back to right. me alive, right? right. The talk. But the talk and with young girls like Ona and others got to talk as well. And we don't, um, we know this also from Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson, We understand that um, encounter and relationship where he fathered, you know, her children. And so this was something that Ona was always cognizant of wherever she went. And I think that's symbolic of enslaved women, period.
0: You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Aspen Ideas To Go is getting easier than ever to find and listen to. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SiriusXM's Insight Channel, NPR One, and now Spotify. Find us on podcast players like Stitcher and Overcast. You can also listen on our website, aspenideas.org, where you'll find some fascinating articles related to the episode. Here's the rest of today's show. Michelle Norris.
2: In preparation for this, I went back and looked at a few Washington biographies. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by how little they actually talk about um, slave ownership Mm -hmm. and how he governed, not just the country, but how he governed the large number of slaves, both his own and the dower slaves that he had. And it's interesting that people chose to skip over that because you learn something essential about him and about the formation of the country in figuring out how he handled the people that he held in bondage. Yeah, yeah, And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you learned about him in yeah. the letters that he wrote, in the correspondence with he and his secretary Lewis, mm-hmm. um, in the way that he treated people who did escape, mm-hmm. um, and the way he, we'll get to the, the decisions he made about going back and forth to Philadelphia in a minute, mm-hmm. but but just what you learned about how, they, how he and, and Martha Washington governed those they held in bondage. And then also if you could talk a little bit about those that were held in bondage, sure. the, the, the rest, the other Everybody seven does. that came with him sure. to Philadelphia. Because I love to cook, mm-hmm. I would like you to you talk a little bit about <laughs> I would I would, uh, <laughs> I would love to hear a little bit more about Hercules, because yeah. he's a really interesting oh, he's character.
1: He's a, a fantastic character, um, uh, person to know. Um, you know, I think one of the things I didn't anticipate when I began this project um, was how much, you know, I don't necessarily call myself a Washington biographer, but once you're sort of in those weeds, um, you, I've learned way more about Washington than I ever really sort of thought I would. And I think what's so interesting about him is that he's a study of of someone who changes over time, right? We all sort of change over time. But it was interesting to compare him and Martha Washington and their views on slavery and the way they, as you said, sort of maintained or uh, regulated, controlled the house and the enslaved people who lived there. George Washington was someone who was born into a slaveholding family. Um, at the age of 10 or 11, he inherits slaves from his father. Um, so he's always lived um, as a slaveholder, as a Virginian. Um, who owned slaves, and so when he and Martha marry and combine their, um, their assets and he takes over control of all of them, it's clear Martha actually brings many more slaves than, than he actually has. And their opinion about slavery, at least for Washington, it changes, and I really do think it's his time in the North, his time uh, with the Revolution Having friends like the Marquis de Lafayette who was like, George, this whole slavery thing, you know, let's, (laughs) let's rethink this. Um, and so the, in his writings, you see, you know, you, you follow him as a young man and then as a general who is buying and selling slaves, who is putting out other advertisements for runaways, and then a man who becomes sort of president and, has been exposed to what is now a new nation who begins to question slavery. And, uh, you know, he writes at one point that he wishes to, quote, get quit of his Negroes. He writes this this uh, phrase. But then he goes on to basically say, well, but if I set my slaves free, many of them have married into Martha's slaves and then the families will be torn apart, so I can't do it. Um, and there, you know, there's, I know, I know, I heard the teeth sucking. Um, You know, there are excuses. Um, But I do think one of the reasons we haven't talked so much about Washington as a slaveholder compared to, say, a Thomas Jefferson is because he does something at the end of his life that the other founding fathers did not do. And that is he makes the decision to emancipate his slaves upon the death of Martha. And so, you know, when George Washington dies and and I, you know, I have sort of thoughts about why and how he made that decision to basically relinquish a tremendous amount of wealth by emancipating enslaved people. But the reality was that Martha and George Washington had no biological children together. George had no biological children. Um, And so there was no son waiting for an inheritance which is how everyone passed down everything in the 18th century, your name, your your property, your wealth, everything. And so I think in some ways that loosened um, expectations of what he would do. And so I see, you know, he, he did in death what he would not do in life. And, you know, Martha, who realizes that the only thing standing between 120-odd people's freedom was her life, um, quickly made the decision to set them free early. Like, they didn't have to wait for her to die, you know? And so, you know, there's this kind of interesting letters that come from Martha Washington to Abigail Adams about you know, her feeling nervous that there were fires at Mount Vernon. And so she's like, oh, my, what's going to happen here? Yeah, let me just set those folks free. She never sets any of her slaves free, even the ones. um, There's at least one that she purchased outright as opposed to having them inherited from her first husband. and. She sets out of them free, and so what I was able to do also in the book with the research is I tracked where they all went. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, there are in some ways Martha and George Washington are a kind of study in contrast, mm-hmm. and a study in how ideas about slavery were changing for everyone, including the president of the United States. And changing for those
2: who were enslaved also. So could you talk a a little bit, I I loved hearing about their lives also, Mm -hmm. their interior lives, and how they had to navigate. So for instance, if you were a postillion, um, which meant you drove the coach, you were in a new city, Well, if you went to a new city now, I mean, now we would just pick up Waze, right? You just like put in an address and Waze would tell you where to go. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you would read a map Mm -hmm. or you would speak to a friend. But they were often illiterate. In fact, they were almost all illiterate. So they had to navigate a new city without the tool of literacy. So they had to make friends. They had to figure it out on the fly. Um, Hercules Mm -hmm. insisted on bringing his son with him. And as a dandy um, became somewhat of a celebrity. In the city of Philadelphia. Yeah,
1: yeah. Hercules. Um, you know, I'm. I'm. One thing we remember about the seven enslaved people who went to New York—two women, uh, five men, one of them being Ona, so a young woman—is um, that they all had very distinct responsibilities and duties. And her older Ona's older brother, Austin, was um, a waiter. Um, as you said, we, we have pastilians who, and actually what's interesting is pastilians are somewhat different than carriage drivers because oh, actually me. coachmen and carriage drivers, that was left, uh, white men were left for that role. A postillion actually sat on the horse ahead. So you weren't in the carriage mm-hmm. with the Washingtons. You were on the horse. Um, ahead of the carriage, helping to navigate uh, the the path. But those postillions were the ones responsible for learning directions. And um, in a new city in the 18th century, where roads are horrendous, um, and so there's so much um, uh, sort of intellectual engagement that these folks have to do just to figure out a new city. Hercules, he too, he's one of my sort of favorite um, studies because. He's a man who um enslaved yet knew his importance with the Washingtons. He was a cook, a chef. And this was he was Washington's favorite. And this was important for a man who, you know, had one tooth left in his mouth when he appeared as president. That's the, it's the truth that when we think about the 18th century and and sort of dental disease and what have you, Washington was in a great deal of pain um, because of horrible dental issues. So by the time he reached he becomes president. He literally has one tooth. And so he to have a chef who knew what food you liked and could prepare it in a way for you to actually eat it uh, was important. While you're entertaining all the time. While you're entertaining and while you have um, a set or several sets of horribly constructed dental uh, dentures right and so you know the story the myth that George Washington had wooden teeth that's totally inaccurate and you know they drank wine all the time wood would stain red in a minute Um, but he did have dentures and you can go to Mount Vernon and see them in um, the exhibit that they have right now and those dentures were made from they were teeth pulled from the mouths of enslaved people And the little tag tells you that right by the dentures. I know this was so not in your history book, right? Um, (laughs) But if you go to Mount Vernon, you'll see that. Teeth from enslaved people and from cows. And so think think about though, you're a president, the first president, and it's your responsibility to meet Um, ambassadors and dignitaries from across the world. But you're really plagued with um, problems eating. You know, everything is social sort of around eating. It was important to have someone who could present very sort of fancy, um, acceptable food but knew what Washington wanted to eat. And so Hercules knows he has this kind of social capital by knowing that Washington depends on him in some ways, right? And so he get he he finds a way to encourage the Washingtons to allow him to bring his son Richmond, who was um, basically learning his father's trade as a as a chef, wasn't so good at it. And Washington writes that he can't he doesn't like this kid at all. But because it's Hercules' son, he allows him to bring his son with him. So that, those are the moments where you understand how slavery. It's not as um, Sort of cut and dry as one would think that there's there are ways that enslaved people maneuver and bring and are allowed to kind of bring family members with them and we see that with Hercules he was well dressed and he actually took the leftover food from the Washingtons and kind of sold it on um, the sort of black market of food scraps which in the 18th century. You could fetch significant money by selling used tea leaves or animal fat, right? And so he does this, and he's well known and he's well dressed. And the Washingtons actually become nervous, right, about him that uh, living in Philadelphia might be might tempt him to do certain things. Well,
2: that's an interesting point to talk about living in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Because they move to Philadelphia, where, as you noted, there are thousands of free, free, yeah. free people of color. Right. And they bring a cotillion of enslaved men and women. And they have a little bit of a blind spot mm. because they don't understand the psychology of what that would be like. Imagine if you are a small number of people who are enslaved and you're surrounded by free people of color who are going where they want, who have agency over their lives, who are starting businesses, who are worshiping on their own terms. Mm -hmm. And they also have a blind spot about a law that holds that if you stay in, maybe you should explain this, if you stay in the city for a certain amount of time, freedom is yours. Right.
1: So there's this, you know, I think what becomes very clear is that the Washingtons were unwilling to live without slave labor, even though they were in, the North. In New York, slavery was still somewhat, you know, all the sort of founding fathers in New York, the governor, they owned slaves. So that wasn't as sort of touchy a subject when they were in New York. And they had gone to New York first. They went to New York first in 1789. They moved to Philadelphia in November of 1790. So the stay is short there. And they encounter a completely different environment in Philadelphia in part because of a sort of large Quaker presence this um, and the move to end slavery. So the Gradual Abolition Act that was passed in Pennsylvania 10 years before they arrived had a law in it and it stated that if you were a non-resident and if you came to Pennsylvania with your slaves, you could only stay for six months and then after that six-month period, if you didn't leave, your slaves were emancipated. Yes, that's you know a moment where you're like, dun dun dun, like that's going to be problematic. And they for, learn of
2: this from the attorney general who right. comes to
1: the house and says, uh, "By the way, right. <laughs> the, the attorney <laughs> G- general um, pays a, a visit to the Washingtons. George is, is down on a southern tour at the time." Martha Washington and the secretary, Tobias Lear, receive him. And he basically comes to them and says, look, you're, you've you got a problem here. My slaves found out about this law and they basically recited it back to me and now they're free. Okay. So you may want to think about that. Uh, and there was nothing that he could do about it. So um, the letters that go back and forth between Tobias Leo, the secretary, and George Washington. You know, this is a moment when I'm reading through Washington's papers and I'm like, oh, George, just George writes, you know, that basically they're going to create a slave rotation plan. And then every six months, these are George's words, not mine, don't shoot the messenger. Um, that every six months, they would rotate their slaves from Philadelphia back to Virginia in essence, restarting the clock, right, on slavery. And if if going to Mount Vernon was an inconvenience, a quick trip to Trenton across the the river would, in essence, do the same thing. They'd go out of state and come back in. So, you know, so it's a moment where it's, George Washington isn't necessarily breaking the law but he's breaking the spirit, right, of the law. And he writes that he wishes to have um, to deceive the public. Those are the words he uses, them, meaning the enslaved people, and the public. So he wants this kind of on the low-low, as my son would say, and that ultimately Martha Washington understood and planned some quick trips in order to make certain that they would not lose one of the enslaved people who came with them to Philadelphia. And so this is a moment where you just have to you step back and you, you're wrestling with
0: you know the image
1: that we have of uh, the first president of the United States. But we also understand him as a human, flawed as we all are, and someone who was invested in slave labor and the wealth that it produced for him. And they also wrote about, they didn't like, because you know there's a moment where you're like, well, why didn't you just have white servants like everybody else in, in the 1790s? And George and Martha wrote, they didn't like them. They thought that white servants, it's kind of hilarious. It's the sort of flip on the stereotype that they were lazy and, um, troublesome and, you know, too hard unclean. to man, unclean, you know, wouldn't let, uh, was upset with a, one of the cooks, a woman, um, he called her dirty and that the kitchen was dirty, you know, and that he preferred and Martha preferred to live a life that they were accustomed to in Virginia and that that was going to be transplanted to Philadelphia and they were going to do what they needed to do in order to maintain that. And there was the issue of their wealth. Because
2: the farm was struggling, Mount, they were struggling back at Mount Vernon, and if they lost their slaves and they
1: intended to return back to Virginia, they would lose significantly. They would lose wealth, and you know, I think, like many at the the sort of after the American Revolution, at the beginning of the nation, everybody's kind of cash strapped, and George Washington is one of them. He has to borrow money to actually go to New York to become sworn in as the president. Um, of the United States. Um, So there's a significant sort of issue with currency and the beginning of the nation. And, um, but what's important to know is that the slaves at at Mount Vernon were always listed either as George Washington slaves or as dower slaves, as Martha's slaves. So if any of the enslaved ran off, if Ona ran off, if Hercules ran off, he was, George Washington as father was responsible for the enslaved, mm-hmm. responsible for basically having to pay the estate of Martha Washington for for any who ran off. Mm. So that was well. that was money that he didn't necessarily want to have to cough over to um, those who would inherit eventually Martha's, his grandchildren, Martha's grandchildren. Um, that was expensive.
2: Well, you mentioned the adage that's often attached to George Washington's history, the notion that he cannot tell a lie. Mm-hmm. But the ruse that they set up to rotate those who were enslaved was really complex. And they often didn't tell people who were being rotated why they were being rotated. And they gave them quite a bit of trust. So they were worried about them marching into freedom. And yet, when Austin was sent back, he was given $11 and told that he should go here and go there and make his way back to with the notion that he would actually
1: go. And he did, Right. Um, right? but he wouldn't just slip away into, into freedom. And, you know, I think that, you know, the moment when I'm reading through the receipts, so I'm looking through the ledgers and the receipts of the president's house in Philadelphia, and I see that, you know, $11 is given to Austin to go by himself to travel from Philadelphia back to Virginia. Now, they need him to because the six months is, is coming to a close, but that he would do it on his own, that they would trust him to do it on his own, and that he wouldn't run off. Well, I think that the Washingtons were clear and understood that Austin had a family back at Mount Vernon. He had a wife and children. And to make the decision to run off, to escape, that became much more difficult when you had family members back in Virginia. And so um, clearly they trusted Austin to make that journey by himself, and he did, and he returned um, on several occasions. Uh, There were some members of the enslaved uh, people in the household who they didn't trust, um, like that Hercules was one of them where they kind of always had their eyebrow up. He was not traveling alone frequently, um, and they were smart about that. Um, And so it, it once again shows us the complex nature of slavery, that you could have an enslaved person working for you um, who could totally have run off and absconded with that $11, but didn't. And why did it take Ona so long to make the decision to run off uh, from the Washingtons? I think we have to remember the deep connections these folks had to their home, to Virginia, which was their home, and to their family members.
2: So where we we know the seeds of freedom were probably set in Ona's heart and in her mind when she went to Philadelphia. Help us understand how she decided to do this and and, and when she finally got the gumption to step away and and how she actually,
1: the logistics of this were really complicated. Yeah, they were. Um, Ona really, um, she lived in Philadelphia for six years. So it's not a situation where as soon as she kind of went north, she ran away that wasn't it at all she lived um with the washington's and um, performed her duties influenced by black freedom around her seeing black entrepreneurs on the streets selling their pepper pot soup and their oysters and fresh fruit and mother bethel church being built around the corner you know black freedom was palpable to her but still she didn't make the decision to run until she learns of a change in plans about her ownership. And Martha Washington was, as I said, didn't have children who were still living, just grandchildren, and one of her um, granddaughters announced that she was getting married. And this was a guy they didn't know, he was 20 years older than her, he was an Englishman, they were totally worried about that, um, that he would take her back to England. Um, He was also a man who had spent a good amount of time in India and um, had three biracial children with an Indian woman. So he was a total wild card, right, for the Washingtons. And so when they find out that their granddaughter is marrying They're upset about it, but they make a decision. Okay, we'll we will give you our approval. But Martha Washington takes it a step further, and she says, "Look, I I can't be there to help her. I know. I think she's moving into this relationship too quickly. She's rash. So since I can't be there to help her, I am going to give her the best wedding gift, and that wedding gift is Ona Judge. So after a decade." of serving Martha Washington, of being made to feel as though she were special, Ona realizes that she's not and that her life is going to change very quickly. That, and the granddaughter Eliza Custis Law was known as being a sort of difficult um, woman with a temper and Ona later on in her interviews that she leaves at the end of her life, she says, there was no way I was going to be her slave. And so there are a bunch of things sort of coming together, the influence of a free black Philadelphia, knowing that her ownership is gonna change, that Martha Washington has basically discarded her, that prompts her to think very differently about her future and that This was her moment. This, if she was going to try and escape, that escaping from Philadelphia would be far easier than escaping from Virginia. And so she sees the window and she calls upon resources and her friends and she takes her moment. We're doing this in February,
2: which is Black History Month. But I just want to add something to the sermon you just gave us about the importance of seeing black history as American history and mm-hmm. not separating them. Because you really can't understand American history if you don't understand black history. Indeed, And black history is American history, and we, we so often separate those two things and see one as ancillary to the other when instead there is a, a direct through line. Mm-hmm. Um, we could go on, but we have to end this. But I, because you, you, you've heard that I have a slight obsession with Hercules, <laughs> um, I just want to end on this note because on this day, Hercules set off for his freedom. So could you just end with a story about yeah. how that happened? He he decided to take leave on George Washington's birthday. Yeah.
1: So Hercules was, um, you know, in, in many ways, after Ona ran off, everyone's life changed, the enslaved in particular. Everyone was sent back to Mount Vernon. When they returned in the fall, they only brought two enslaved people with them was their last sort of go round in Philadelphia until they left, he left office. But everyone pretty much was sent back to Mount Vernon, including Hercules. And Hercules was actually demoted from being sort of cook chef to um, uh, a clay digger, which was sort of one of the worst jobs you could kind of have. And for many, many years, people thought that Hercules had, had run away before Ona, but he didn't, he ran away after her and he ran away on the president's birthday from Virginia and he was never seen again. And it shows us that he more than likely, he created this network of people from Philadelphia all the way down to Virginia that could, once he was removed from his position of authority and control in the kitchen to a clay digger, he made the decision, I will not live my life like this. And he ran off and that was his gift to George Washington.
2: <laughs>
1: well, you have been a gift to us. <laughs> great.
0: Erica Armstrong Dunbar is the Charles and Mary Beard Professor of History at Rutgers University. Her latest book is Never Caught. Michelle Norris runs a program at the Aspen Institute called The Bridge. She's the former host of NPR's All Things Considered. Their conversation was held in Washington, D.C. on February 22, 2018, the 286th birthday of George Washington. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Follow Aspen Ideas To Go year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.